Welcome to the Rocks Podcast. The book of James brings a nice balance to the other New Testament letters. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. James, on the other hand, reminds us that true faith will produce good works, for faith without works is dead. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this very practical epistle. Make your way back to James chapter 1, where we are going verse-by-verse through the New Testament. We find ourselves in the first chapter of James. It is moving in slower verses than I thought. Uh, Chapter 1 has a lot of different ideas in it, so we're taking our time. Chapter 2 is a a larger chunk there, so we'll be moving a little bit faster. But uh, we like to take our time and try to understand what the scriptures are saying. Now, Heavenly Father, in that regard, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, understanding, to understand these concepts and principles which Jesus taught us will set our hearts free. Father, as you have said, man cannot live simply by food alone, but by the word that comes from God's mouth that gives us spiritual life. And so, Father, uh, may your word not be received in vain, but may we hear it and practice it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may remember this face. Michael Phelps, I'm going to keep that up there for a minute. The American swim machine, who has overall won 16 Olympic medals, six gold and two bronze at Athens in 2004, and eight gold at Beijing in 2008. One of the most successful athletes of all time, his international titles and record-breaking performances have earned him the World Swimmer of the Year Award six times, and the American Swimmer of the Year Award eight times. He has won a total of 59 medals in, in major international competitions 50 gold, 7 silver, and 2 bronze spanning the Olympics, the World, and the Pan-Pacific Championships. His unprecedented Olympic success in 2008 earned Phelps Sports Illustrated Magazine Sportsman of the Year Award. Thanks, Joey. Just several weeks after Beijing, something happened in his life a way that he foolishly behaved that really jeopardized all this honor and cast a shadow on on Michael's career and cost him dearly. I'll read to you from the London Times the title, Drug Claim Could Spell Disaster for Michael Phelps. And now I'll just read to you. A mixture of shock and disbelief swept the United States yesterday as the nation woke up to humiliating apology from the man it had hailed as its greatest Olympic athlete. Michael Phelps was a hero and a role model 
for millions, but now his career will be stained forever by claims that he is a drug user. The world's greatest swimmer was forced to apologize after a British tabloid newspaper showed a picture of him appearing to get high at a college party just weeks after creating history at Beijing. In a spellbinding week, Phelps had won a record eight gold medals. But his reputation is now in shambles as Phelps' face beamed out from cereal packages on millions of breakfast tables throughout the U.S., the lucrative result of just one of his many sponsorship deals, his apology came as a desperate act of damage limitation. Marijuana is banned under World Anti-Doping Agency rules, and athletes caught smoking dope could face a ban of up to two years, loss of medals, and certainly loss of lucrative endorsements. The fallout could be huge, according to market experts, who believe that there could be a mass bailout by the sponsors who had clamored to sign him up after Beijing. Quote, There's nothing short, this is nothing short of disaster. John Taylor, chairman of Sports Impact, one of Britain's da 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 da. Every sponsor has something called a disrepute. disrepute clause written into their contracts. And I'm sure everyone is reading through the fine print even now. And here's the part that really caught me. The gold around his neck has become diminished in value by foolish behavior. Well, it turned out that Kellogg's indeed did drop him like a hot potato, among many others. And the U.S. swim team kicked him off the team for a few months. Now, to me, it's just capital crazy that such a small little thing, when we lack self-control in just a small area, how it can devalue something of great honor and achievement. Just, just one little area of, self, of a lack of self-control can ruin something so wonderful you know, I can just name some names for you, and immediately, instead of thinking about their great accomplishment, you think about the thing that they did, the dumb little thing. For example, statesman, President Clinton, one of the most wise, smartest, intelligent statesmen to ever live, but because he was promiscuous, one area out of control. Michael Vick. As a star quarterback, to just think about greed and cruelty. A world heavyweight boxing champion, Mike Tyson, and so many others. Just, just a little bit of a problem with temper. But everything else, you know, yeah. And ears, apparently. <laughs> and hunger. Maybe it was all about being hungry. <laughs> All right, Mel Gibson. I mean, you just think, boy, Academy Award-winning guy. He's got it all. And now, every time you say the name, you know, it's just so sad. Well, James' point here in chapter 1 is this exact principle. In fact, these are living contemporary illustration of what the Bible is talking about. Here in James chapter 1, he says, A lack of self-control, even in one small area, can render a Christian life useless. 
and devoid of any true value in the sight of God. So we pick up in verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And uh, that's going to mark the place where we are going to uh, reflect on this morning's text. These just two simple verses, really. Now, right from the jump, I want to say that James isn't defining the gospel, nor is he giving it the priority of which uh, the gospel's all about. He's giving three general areas that if you are a Christian, if Christ has come into your life, there are three general evidences of that in a person's life. His words and uh, his behavior, his love, and keeping himself morally clean. Those are three areas that should uh, have an impact in our lives. Now, James has already told us that it's all about the word of God. The word of God really implanted in our hearts saves us. When we hear the message that Jesus died on the cross to save us and we respond and open our hearts, the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us new life. That's how we're saved. Don't get the wrong idea and think, well, you know, I got to do these three things in order to be saved. James is saying, if you are saved, you ought to see these three things as a response of being saved and having already obtained eternal life, not in an effort to obtain it. That's a big mistake that Christians make. Coming to Christ and having eternal life and making it to heaven has nothing to do with being good. Zero. You're either in Christ or you're not. You either got your sins paid for or you didn't. And then the goodness that follows the conversion is a response to what's already happened in a person's heart freely. So in this case, he's saying the one thing that could really unravel you as a Christian, saved or not, is an unbridled tongue. And so it would seem that loose lips not only sink ships, but can take down a person's Christian testimony and effectiveness as well. And you know, folks, it doesn't need to be a big hole in a ship that will take the ship down. The tongue is three inches by one and a half inch. Not very big, but it can take the whole life down when it's not restrained. And so we're going to talk about that. James' congregation is really kind of weak, and they're falling apart under pressure, tribulation, and hardship. They're outcasts. They don't have enough work. And really, they're, they're collapsing. Um, and although they are well-versed in the Word of God, they know a lot of stuff, and they have a working knowledge of the Christian faith, their fatal flaw, as we've been seeing, is, is that they know the truth, but they won't do it. They're the deer in the proverbial headlights. They're just frozen. They're not, they, they know the stuff. They know what the Bible says. They profess to be religious and Christian, and however, they're not 
<laughs> They're not moving out of the way. So if the deer doesn't get a clue, it's gonna be venom in, ve venison stew. Oh, I blew my one big joke. <laughs> Let me try it again, pretend you didn't hear it. If the deer doesn't move out of the way, no, now it won't rhyme, because I changed it. <laughs> Do you get it? He's gonna be roadkill, all right? <laughs> It's one thing to hear the tornado siren. It's another thing to take cover. That's what James is saying to these Christians who's saying, don't tell me I already know it from A to Z. I've read the Bible more than you have. And he says, well, can you put it into practice? Because if you don't, you're going to end up in harm's way. And so he goes on, you know, here in verse 26 and 27, for the third time, he says, don't deceive yourself. Don't fool yourself. Don't pull the wool over your own eyes. And that's interesting that in, in 10 short verses, he said that three times. Don't deceive yourself. The first time he used it in verse 16, it was to wander away from the truth. In verse 22, it's to be tricked or trapped by someone. And here in verse 26, the word for deceived is intentionally cheating someone out of something. So in this case, he's saying you are cheating yourself out of a meaningful, uh, effective Christian life when you won't bridle your tongue. Now, in this case, really, their bad behavior really is about the mouth and the tongue. And here's what he's saying. Genuine faith, saving faith, will express itself in visible ways in at least three areas, as I've mentioned, our speech, our love for others, and our moral behavior. So first of all, he says, if you're taking notes, this is number one, keep a tight rein on your tongue. Now, Jesus taught, taught us that from the overflow of the heart, the lips speak. You can say, I was only joking. I didn't mean it that way. Um, I was just blowing off steam. But God's word teaches that the only thing that comes out of this mouth is what's in the heart. And so he says that on that great day that men and women will be condemned according to their own words because the word is an accurate measure of what's going on inside of you. And so if the heart's been touched by the living God, the words which come from it ought to reflect that fact. So here's the paraphrase of the first thought. Your unbridled tongue, your careless way of speaking, is making a complete mockery of your so-called Christian faith. It's defeating the entire purpose of the gospel, canceling out all the potential good and value of your so-called Christian experience. So... He says, so, first the claim, the claim that you're saying you're religious. Let's evaluate that. Open your mouth, stick out your tongue, and say, ah, we're going to check out to see how you're doing in your wellness check as a Christian by looking at the state of your tongue, just like medical doctors do. The word they're saying, they're saying we're religious, and the word James uses, threskos, in the Greek, it's really a neutral word. 
It's a worshiper. It's a focus, really, on the outward worship of uh, spiritual disciplines uh, when we worship God. It's not a word that Protestants and evangelicals, as we are, use anymore. In fact, we consider religious to be a pejorative term, a negative term. When somebody says, oh, I'm not very religious, I always say, neither am I. And they say, but you're a pastor. How can that be? Well, because the word religion sort of, in in our day, concentrates on the outward. And so when you say uh, somebody's religious, I tend to think of beads and rote praying and lighting of candles and and abstaining from certain foods or practices, a lot of man-made laws, but not a lot of inward transformation. And that's why born-again Christians don't like that word. And we say it's not about a religion. It's about a, a relationship with the living God. That's fine, but, you know, a hundred years ago, we used the word religion, and it was okay. We sang hymns, give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. And the stanzas go, uh, it will get us to heaven. It will make me love everyone. And so there were even famous sermons, uh, 18th century, Samuel Davies, The danger of lukewarmness in religion. Another one, religion, the only source to true happiness. And so within a hundred years, we have that word has become really anathema to us. We don't like that word, but really it's an okay word to use about you could say, I belong to the Christian religion. Uh, You wouldn't be in error for saying that. So James is writing to so-called Christians, so he's saying, so you consider yourself devoted to God, spiritually mature person, a spiritual person, or a Christian. You consider yourself a Christian, but consistently speak in unloving, unholy, hurtful ways. Your whole religion goes out the window. You're only fooling yourself. Now, this opens the way to a little theological teaching moment. Two possible scenarios here. One, the genuinely saved Christian who is going to heaven has self-deluded themselves, and because they are willfully sinning, they're, they're blowing it, and that's what he's talking about. They're rendering their Christian testimony uh, to nothing, to worthless. They will still arrive in heaven because it's not based on your getting your act together. There are Christians who never get their act together. They will, as I like to say, crash on the runways of heaven. And from the big fireball, Jesus will help them out, dust them off, clothes a little bit smoky, but they're there. <laughs> Am I making this stuff up? No. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can read it for yourself. Read chapter 3. It says that when Christians who live in unbecoming ways and sinful ways and don't obey, even though you're saved by grace, you know, you lose everything. You lose reward, but you yourself can still be saved. So is he talking about that? Maybe. Maybe he's talking about a Christian who really, I mean, we know Christians who who can't control their tongues. They're still going to heaven. They're doing a lot of damage, and God will be speaking to them in the life to come about that. 
We all don't get the same reward or responsibility in the life to come. It's based on our faithfulness here. The second scenario is the nominal Christian, which means in name only. They're not really truly saved. It's all outward. And their words that are unrestrained and profane and hurtful and mean and dishonest and all the ways you can sin with your mouth and your words gives their unconverted heart away. So an unconverted heart produces unconverted words. So whichever it is, does it really matter? He's saying, whoever you are, it's worthless. You're you're coming up as a zero. If you're a Christian doing that, you're having a worthless moment. And if you keep doing it, you're having a lot of worthless moments. And if you're not a Christian, it's just worthless to think that you are when you're not. So the gist of it, notice with me that he doesn't say exactly what they're saying. The gist of it is, is that you're out of control. And because your lips are out of control, it means there's no mastery within. And the master has supposedly come in through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of questionable now. He's saying your tongue is like a runaway Appaloosa. You know, uh, Warren Wearsby said, if you've ever sat on 1,500 pounds of restless bone and muscle and then hung on at full gallop, you have the idea of what James is talking about. Now, the tongue, this kind of tongue will stop for no one and nothing. It obeys only its wild impulse of its own untamed passions. James' point is the outcome of unbridled speech is counterproductive to everything Christian religion stands for. Now, because of what you're saying and who cares about what you call yourself or what seminary you went to or how much Bible you know, because of what's actually being said, you're nullifying your complete purpose of being a blessing by what you're saying. You're now the doctor who can't heal. You're the cop who doesn't protect. You're the accountant who's bad at math. You know, yesterday we saw African Cats, the movie, out. Apparently nobody here knows about it. (laughs) Or you're surprised that I went to a Disney movie. Well, what what other movie can Pastor Ross go see? Actually, honestly. And I saw these ostrich with all these feathers and plume. And I was sitting there going, wow, they got a lot of feathers. I'm a bird, I'm a bird. I do feathers for a living. You know, but I don't fly. <laughs> what is up with that? You those beautiful feathers and all that plumage and what? You big, ugly, grounded walker. You can't even fly. Why do you even call yourself a bird? You're some kind of thing. You're, you're half bird, half giraffe. You know, come on. James is saying, excuse me, a Christian who gossips, a Christian who's mean, a Christian who's rude, a Christian who's profane. He says, you're the bird that can't fly, man. Stop calling yourself a Christian. It's embarrassing. And the only one who's really fooled is you. 
Everybody else has got a question mark over your head. How can you say that you know the Lord and talk like that? That's James' point. And I'm just telling you, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm just telling you what he's telling you. Jesus builds up, your words tear down. He's a uniter. Your words divide. He encourages, you discourage. Jesus speaks with purity, you with profanity. Jesus is merciful, your words are harsh. Jesus is loving, your words are unkind. Jesus is the truth, and your words are dishonest. Paul the Apostle would tag team with James and say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, Are you sure that Christ has touched your heart at all? Maybe you should examine yourself and find if Christ is in you by the Holy Spirit. Because if he's in you, you ought to be able to see some kind of response. He says that James, now back to James, he says that the whole deal's become matayas, and that means worthless, vain, without truth, without purpose, useless. Now, you're saying, James, come on. You know, so somebody's blowing off a little steam or they they gossiping a little bit. Who doesn't gossip and all of that? And you're, you're saying the whole deal is zero worthless? Isn't that kind of an overstatement? Well, the Bible teaches this in other places. Does this sound familiar? If I have spiritual gifts but not love, if I'm the smartest person on earth, if I know all about God and, and faith, if by my great faith I can do spectacular miracles, but I'm lacking in love, if I sacrifice my life giving everything I own to the poor, if I give my body as a martyr to be burned at the stake, but love didn't have anything to do with it, Paul the Apostle says, I am a big fat zero in God's eyes. Make the list. That's an impressive list. To say all of that doesn't count because I'm unloving is a very small thing to erase all of that greatness. So James is saying, I caution you, you better pay attention to what's coming out of your own mouth for your own sake, first of all, for your own sake, and then for the sake of others. So, what does he say? He says, religion that really counts is somebody who keeps a tight rein on the tongue. But then in chapter 3, he's going to say, well, no man can tame that tongue. It's a beast. It, it bows to none. It cannot be tamed, except, of course, by God. Isn't it amazing? Have you thought about this? Acts chapter 2 is when uh, the Holy Spirit comes and fills those who have believed in Christ, and the church is born. And on that day, what is the evidence that the Holy Spirit has come upon the believer? Tongues. They're tongues of fire, they say, what rested above them in a supernatural way, and that they began to speak, commandeered by the Holy Spirit in languages not of their own. The very first evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched somebody's life in the Bible is now the tongue is controlled, finally. 
Why? Because the heart's been touched. It's not about this. This isn't the problem. This is the problem. And as we open our hearts to him, his Holy Spirit comes in and grabs a hold of that. And all he's asking of us once he's done that is, could you cooperate with me? Listen to me. Yield when I tell you to yield. So many times that happens. And yet we go on our merry way. I'm going to end out this point with a, with a quote that I really love. Having a tight rein on your tongue doesn't mean we go around afraid of speaking or about mournfully like a monk who's taken a vow of silence. It means that in all our happy, lighthearted conversations that they bring delight, not defilement. And when we're discussing serious things that involve other people, that things that need to be addressed and talked about, we do so without degenerating into gossip or slander, and that when we are recounting experiences or answering questions or giving opinions, we are filtering our remarks through love, truthfulness, and what's helpful and beneficial in the moment. It's not the cessation of speech that James is talking about, but it's about controlling what's coming out. Now, number two, he says, verse, he says, keep your tongues in check. And second, you might need to break a sweat. So true religion is more than a brand of jeans. It's a Christian faith that evidences itself in um, love for others. So next to this, here's the paraphrase. All right, you're looking for something to check your life to see if you're really connected to God or not. Well, here's something that God always approves of. Looking out for those who are most needy, like widows without husbands or income, like orphans without fathers and mothers. Try taking care of their needs. So Christian faith really produces compassion for those who are in need, and it's a compassion that acts. He's saying there are lonely people who are bereft and grieving all around you, right before your eyes. You know, it's not enough to talk to them or teach them the gospel per se without being willing to help them. Now, here's some context. Orphans and widows were the most helpless among people in ancient times. There was no life insurance, no SSI, no welfare programs, and by the way, no orphanages. Until the first century, and guess who started orphanages? Look it up, Christians. And so there was really nothing in place to help the most vulnerable. And God says, really, if anyone says they love the Lord and don't care about people who are in need, they are deceiving themselves. So widows and orphans will serve as examples of people who need love and mercy shown to them in practical Ways. Why is this so important in the Bible? Well, because it's God's heart. As we read in the psalm, he upholds the case of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who do the right thing, and he watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Here's, here it is in short. He who claims to know the compassionate one must themselves be compassionate. So Jesus tells a story, it's really cool, the parable in Luke chapter 10 that really drives this point home. He says, uh, somebody said, uh, uh, what must I do to be saved? 
to have eternal life. And he says, well, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, if you do this, you'll make it. And he says, well, who's my neighbor? Because that would be hard to love everybody like I love myself. Who's my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself, and Jesus tells him a story. It's a great story. He says, there's this guy. He's on Jericho Highway, and he gets mugged. And the guys beat him within an inch of his life. They rob him blind. They take off some of his clothes and leave him humiliated, bruised, battered, and bloodied in the ditch. And lo and behold, some help is on the way, on the horizon. Here comes a priest with a long robe. And he walks by. He sees him in the ditch, and he crosses the street and goes to the other side. And then, oh, well, there's one bad egg. Well, maybe there's somebody else who's going to help. And there comes... Now, not a pastor this time, but a deacon. And the deacon sees the guy in need and crosses the street and turns a blind eye. And then comes a third person who you wouldn't really expect. He's not a pastor, not a deacon, but everybody who's kind of, everybody rather looks down on this person. But this person shows that he has faith in God because he stops, he has compassion. And he does something about it. He bandages his, his wounds and he clothes him and he puts him on his own donkey and then he takes him to an inn and he says, I can't really do this, but let me pay. And he, and he brings out coins from his own pocket and he says, hey, do what you can for this man and later I'll come and check in on him. And Jesus said, that's proof that a person loves God because he loves others. Because he has Christ's compassion in his own heart. The religious person who walks right by somebody in need and doesn't even feel a thing, nothing. James says, check yourself. There is a short somewhere. Oh, it could be a dangerous short. I just thought, it's not in my notes, of the space shuttle that exploded while we were all watching it. I don't know how many tragic lives were lost there. All the astronauts exploded. Just one little short. One wire. One spark. Boom. Watch yourself, James says. Do you have a hard heart toward poor people? It's not that God loves poor people and hates rich people. It has nothing to do with it. Nor does being poor or oppressed win you any favor or advantage with the gospel. Everybody has to repent whether you're poor or rich. It's just that God has this really tender spot for people who are in distress. The word means philipsis in the Greek. These widows and orphans are pressured. And how can you have the love of God in your life and have material goods, as First John says? See somebody under that kind of pressure and you have the ability to help. He's not talking about if you don't have the ability. If you have the ability, there's the opportunity right there. And you walk by with a hard heart. He says, how can the love of God really be in you? How does that look today? Because you know what, folks? We, we have a few widows. One of them was in need. We've helped her. I don't know if we have any orphans. We reach out. How does that look 
today, 2,000 years later, well, here's what you do. Who's the most vulnerable here? Who's under the most pressure? That's who James is talking about. And who would that be today? Maybe it's somebody who's socially awkward in the youth group and everybody's sitting on one side. Maybe you need to go over, sit with them and spend some time with them. Maybe it's helping a single mom move or helping a single dad with childcare. Maybe it's bringing groceries over when a family is struggling. I'm really quite pleased to be pulling illustrations from our congregation. Everything I'm saying in this list is from something I know has happened here. Maybe it's bringing those groceries or cooking a meal for families when mom is offline. In supporting the pregnancy counseling center and speaking up for those little babies who can't. They don't have a voice. And he says, I want you to speak for them. And we do. We support them. We're supporting the Redwood Gospel Mission, men and women being restored from the brink of disaster. We provide the largest amount of mentors for men and women who are struggling with alcohol and drug abuse addiction in all of the county. We have the highest concentration of of men who said to these fatherless guys, come under my wing, I'll watch over you. I'll nurture you, I'll speak into your life. I'll be there for you. And for once a week, they mentor them for a year. We have close to 15 guys who do that here. That's a great thing. This is what James is talking about. We have a food bank here every Tuesday. Now, the person without Christ, really, is the truest orphan. We have a father. They have a creator but they are estranged from their father because he said, if you want me to be your father, you'll have to come to me through the son who died to make things right between us. So at their own choice, they are fatherless. They have a creator and a maker who loves them, but it's up to them whether they want to be a child who bows the knee to the father The primary task of the church is to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all people, but it's also to live out the gospel by caring for them in practical ways. Well, I've lingered there a little bit, so I'll just close quickly with point number three. Pure Christian living, then, is keeping a tight rein on your tongue, getting your hands dirty, and keeping your soul clean. So this is the third point. Here's the paraphrased thought. One of the big ways you know someone knows the Lord is by their good life and how they keep themselves from spiritual defilement in the world. In other words, as Psalm 97 verse 10 says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. So he's saying that the world is sinful and for the most part rejects Christ and the word of God and does things really um, contrary to the right way. And he says that once we get called out of the world as Christians, is what the word church in the Greek means, called out ones. Once he calls us out, he's separating us for his use only. And he's saying the world around you can infect you. And you need to watch out for being, 
you know, without sounding self-righteous or holier than thou, that we can be infected or, or there's a contagiousness about sin in the culture. And so he, has to, he says, watch out or you'll get spiritually sick. You'll ingest something that's dirty and it kind of wrecks your life. You have to be careful about that. When I was having a bone marrow transplant eight or nine years ago, I am totally cancer-free. My doctor, my, my uh, oncologist told me, stop coming. I don't need to see you anymore. You're, you're perfectly fine. Um, so I'm, I'm all the way healed. But back in those dark days eight years ago, uh, they destroy your marrow completely. And I had no blood of my own. I had, was living on donated blood. And I didn't have many blood cells, fighter cells. So no kids were allowed to see me because, as everybody knows, they have cooties. <laughs> and uh, I had to wear a mask. And anybody who came to my room, I had to put on apron and gloves. Because if I ingested through breathing or in my mouth or any way, it could kill me. I didn't have the defenses. James is saying, watch out, Christians. You live in a world that really uh, is sinful. You know, he's saying, you know, they, they worship sex and sensuality. You got to watch out. I mean, you can't even watch television commercials without being defiled. How, why do you need to sell uh, a burger or tires or, uh, you know, anything else by using sex? But he says, watch out, or you're going to be spiritually defiled. I mean, the world does things differently. There's lust for money and material goods. It's all about, you know, the more toys you have and the propensity for greed and lying and being dishonest and cutting corners and taking revenge and gossip and slander and keep on going on and on. We were at the restaurant the other day, and one waitress says to the other, who doesn't love gossip? Well, James says, be careful because it's dangerous to hear those kinds of things, to be around a world that is in love with sin and sinful things. So you have to guard yourself and keep yourself clean. John put it this way, don't, <laughs> do not love this God-rejecting world. The way this world lives is contrary to the way God lives. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and boastful pride in our achievements and possessions. This kind of thing doesn't come from heaven, but from the sinful world. So you need to be careful for that. Now, if you do get infected, you just become worthless. Mateos, that word again. Um, I was substitute teaching in a high school in Daly City, and there was a guy at the break room. He had an open Bible, and he was sharing the gospel loudly, more loudly than I thought necessary. But, uh, and it was just kind of not being well received by people's expressions, but he was still doing it. And uh, I just was sitting there eating my lunch. And then the phone rang in the break room, and it was for him. And he picked up the phone, and he went off like a crazed maniac. Lost his cool totally. And the whole room was listening. And then 
he sat back down and looked at his Bible. And the word that should come to mind is mateos in the Greek, worthless, all out the window. Everybody with that smirk on their face. And everything you said before you did your thing out the window. You did more harm than good. So James says you've got to put yourself in check. When you've got a Bible, when you've got a Christian bumper sticker on your car, watch the way you drive. That's why I don't have one on my bumper. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, officer. You know, praise the Lord. I just loved it. Just on my way to church. <laughs> Praising God. Christian t-shirts. Once you put the Christian t-shirt on, check yourself. Or get rid of the shirt. <laughs> Cover it up. James is saying three areas are really important. Or you're just going to blow it away. You know, I heard about a guy who said, oh, there was this Christian talking big at the AA meeting, all about Jesus, and my God is this, and you guys have a higher power and all of this stuff, but it's Jesus. And then somebody said, but he had booze on his breath. James, worthless, just worthless. And the only one you're kidding is you. That's what James says. That's his word, not mine. Now, the coolest thing about ending a sermon like this with communion <laughs> is that all those guilty feelings, all of that, those areas that you have called to mind that need cleansing, Jesus said, look, when you come to me, you're clean. As the driven snow, you are innocent of all transgression. I Hate it all. My blood washes you completely clean. However, there's this concept in the scriptures, and Jesus gave it well at the Last Supper. He said, he who knows me, it's like having a bath. You're clean, but you have to keep your feet from being soiled. And so he went around and he washed the disciples' feet. It was just kind of symbolic of us doing the necessary keeping of ourselves Casting thoughts down with the power of the Holy Spirit helping us. You know, it said you can't stop the bird from flying overhead, but you can stop it from building a nest. You see, who, who hasn't fallen in all three of these categories? Every single one of us, including me. No matter how noble and spirit-filled you are, these three areas get you, right? So what does God say? Come to me. Confess your sins, turn from that, acknowledge it, and I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, if you're not a believer and you're here, you're open to God, that there is a God and that kind of thing, uh, let me talk to you a little bit about communion. Communion, God says, let me compare my death on the cross to a meal. So he says, like a meal gives your body life and sustains you, so what I did on the cross is like a meal. So let's call my body bread and my blood wine. Food and drink. Not for your body, but for your soul. And he said, if anybody eat of that, you'll live forever. 
You don't live forever because you had communion. You live forever because you've opened your heart to the living God. This is just to remind us that it's not on our efforts. It's on his sacrifice for us that gives us life. So let's say you're not a believer or you're not. You, listen, friends, there's a difference between believing there is a God and believing in God. It's not enough to believe there is a God. That doesn't save you, the Bible says. You have to trust in him in a personal way. And if you're sitting here and you don't know the Lord, you can bow your head if you wish to partake of communion when it's passed out. You can confess your sins to the Lord real quick. I'm a sinner. I need you, God. I want to take communion. I want to be saved. I believe. And you can receive. You don't have to be a member of the church. We don't do church membership. You need to be a member of the body of Christ like the Bible teaches. Then you can partake. If you don't wish to be served the communion, just decline being served for whatever reason, and that's fine. And all it is is a symbol of saying, Christ is in my life, I'm saved by the cross through his death and blood and his resurrection. And then that feeds me, and we take that to remember the depth of his love for us all. So as Chris comes up here and begins, the ushers are going to come forward. I'm going to get to encourage you to take those areas of conviction to the cross where they're paid for in full. The best thing about being a Christian is the honesty, is that you, you don't have to say, I'm not like that, oh, I don't do that, or I only do it sometimes, or whatever. Listen, you are that bad, all right? And you <laughs> Because I'm not bad as well. And the reason Christ died is to save us. So you don't have to be making all your justifications about how bad things are or how it's not that bad. It's bad. Acknowledge it. That's how you, 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 you turn from those things and you're healed and that's how you grow. So sit there while we're seeing that. Think about the ways that you have not kept a tight rein on your tongue, how you've hardened your hearts to people's needs right in front of you. And how you've been infected and let your guard down and made some pretty worthless moments. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we consider the greatest wonder the world has ever known, the Son of God on a cross, on a Roman cross, being crucified in great agony and shame. As we consider that, the thing that sets us free. Help us to remember your great love. May we be open with you. These are hard areas, and we want to confess our sins to you, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness and set us right. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.